we have very generous communities and people love little boys playing baseball. And <laughs> if you're not afraid of the word no, and you're willing to kind of beat the streets and go out and keep asking, you would be shocked at some people that just want to pay it forward. to Moms in Baseball. This is episode 19 and I'm Stephanie. I'm Diana. Today we'll be talking about Moms in Baseball fundraising, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Absolutely. And we also have a guest mom. I met Shannon Robinson at our tournament in Florida. We were Our kids were on the same prospect team with game day um, and she was a delight and we were chatting and I said, oh my goodness, we have to have you on our podcast. So welcome, Shannon. Welcome. Thank you, ladies. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Shannon. Um, why don't you give just a moment to talk about yourself and your experience with travel baseball and fundraising? So again, my name is Shannon Robinson, and I um, have been involved with baseball since my son was in T-ball at around four to five years old. And around the age of eight to nine, my husband and I both decided that we wanted him to have a different experience in baseball, maybe a higher level of competition than what he was currently getting there. Not to say that Little League doesn't offer amazing opportunities to kids, but at our at that level, we just decided that maybe we wanted him to have a different experience. Our, our dilemma at that point was so many travel baseball organizations charge so much money that we we just decided and we live in a small community and a lot of other players on this little league team that we played on were also interested in the same things that we were but the cost that was being thrown out by different organizations around our area and I think probably nationally seemed exorbitant for nine-year-old baseball players. And so my husband and I, we decided that we would roll the dice and take a gamble and start our own travel baseball organization. We started the New Prairie Ironmen when my son was nine, for so for 9U, um, and we took approximately, I would say, 90% of our players out of the 12 players we had were all from our small town. But the biggest thing that we had decided at that point was kind of twofold. We're going to go into this and we're going to do the best we can, but we're also going to try and see if we can keep these costs down in some capacity because we had a lot of families that were not in a position to pay that kind of money. Um, And we also felt like no player should be denied an opportunity to play at a higher level just because of a price tag. I love that. And so we kind of came into this very raw, not understanding all the costs that would be associated to include the insurance and trying to get the equipment and renting fields, et cetera. But we just, we came into it that we wanted to see if we could charge our players, you know, to start with $250 and see if we could compete with other organizations that were charging much more. And then the following year we would reevaluate. I have to know how successful were you that first year, because that's, that's a pretty lofty goal. Like you said, no matter what team you're playing for, you're going to have a lot of the same expenses. You're going to have field rental fees, uniforms, tournament costs, insurance. Um, That's going to be the same for no matter what team you're playing for. You know, um, honestly, Diana, I would say that our first year was such a success that we just built upon it for the next four years. And we realized that, um, you know, a significant amount of fundraising and I, and I kind of loop fundraising in with sponsorships 
we are very generous communities and people love little boys playing baseball. And (laughs) if you're not afraid of the word no, and you're willing to kind of beat the streets and go out and keep asking, you would be shocked at some people that just want to pay it forward for some reason or another. They may not even have any affiliation with your team. It's not necessarily a grandparent or whatever. So at the first year, only because everything was so new, that was probably the most challenging year. But again, sort of as a spoiler alert, the last year that I did it, which was last year, I had 12 players on my team. And by the end of the season, um, not only did eight of my 12 players not pay anything, we actually wrote them checks back because we were dissolving the team at that time for approximately $400. Wow. Yeah, that's incredible. It's definitely doable. I just think it takes some gumption and it takes a committed effort by everyone. And again, we can kind of go into that because I had to lay parameters out for my team because the first year I I started to see a picture where some of the parents were very into fundraising and other parents were not as into fundraising. But how was I to equally divide that up when some people were doing more work than others, but everyone was getting the benefit? And so we started each year to try to come up with ways to sort of either allow someone to buy out and not really participate necessarily in a certain faction of the fundraising, or you would essentially, like I said, eight in the last year, eight of my 12 players paid nothing. They paid nothing. That is right? great. And we, and when I say that, I mean, we played 45 games. We traveled to four different states. Um, they all had three uniforms, bat bags, helmets, cleats, all provided by our organization, sweatshirts, swagwear. I mean, we were able to provide all of that by the generosity and the ability of our parents to kind of push and see who would be willing to help us out. You mentioned that you had that dynamic where certain parents are very willing to fundraise or are very motivated to fundraise while others maybe are happier to just write a check because my guess is that's going to be representative of just about every team out there, right? And I think it changes at different levels and different geographies, but I I think that's generally going to be the case. So that is always a question, isn't it? Like, how do I I make this fair? How do I do this for the team? So I'm glad that you guys had that issue too. So maybe we can talk a little (laughs) bit about that. I want to highlight something you said before we move on. But you said something about how successful you could be and you would be surprised about people's generosity and willing to help if you aren't afraid of the word no. Right. I feel like Stephanie and I are learning that a bit mm-hmm. right now. We're learning that just even with this podcast, I'm constantly shocked at people that are willing to talk to us, you know, and like you said, if, if you're not afraid of like, what's the worst yeah. they can say? Well, the worst they can do is either not respond or say no. Yeah. And honestly, what oh, does well, it hurt? And yeah. so, yeah, we are just starting to reach out to people and I'm, I'm shocked at how often people actually don't say no, they do say yes. So why do we let that fear hold us back so much? I don't know. You know, it was interesting because we do a um, a tiered sponsorship level so that, you know, I've seen some sponsorship levels where it's like you have to, you know, if you're paid $250, we'll give you this. If you pay $500, I'll give you this. But the reality is, is that some of your best sponsors may just want to contribute $50. Mm-hmm. And if you get 10 of those, 
you're at $500. And so, yeah, it adds up quickly. Yeah, it absolutely does. And so we had a tiered sponsorship level, like a bronze, silver, gold, and platinum. And that really seemed to work for us because inevitably, if we went out, most people, if they were wanting to help, could at least probably do 50. Some wanted to do 500. And that was the really interesting thing is that we would almost shotgun to a lot of local businesses and we would get some businesses. They absolutely had no affiliation, but other than to say, we love boys baseball and this is great. And we would like to be a platinum sponsor. And I would, I was literally floored. Yeah. I would get an email back like, oh my gosh, we just got another platinum sponsor. This is incredible. But it was that ability to sort of just shotgun it out. Let's say you sent out a hundred, but if you even got 10% back that said yes, in some capacity, it was amazing. So we had a lot of success with that for sure. With your sponsorship, did you have to make any promises of like putting them on a banner or like advertising that they were a part of it? Yeah, I'll just briefly go over um, like our sponsorship levels that worked for us. So we did a, a bronze sponsorship was $20 to 100 and that you would get recognition on our Facebook page. So we had a Facebook page, so we would recognize all of our sponsors, as well as you would be invited to a sponsor appreciation gathering at the end of the year. So we would have a large, we would get like everybody bring a dish and we're going to grill out hot dogs and hamburgers and we would invite all of our sponsors. Some came, some didn't, but they were all invited. We would have like a wiffle ball game against the players. We would take pictures with the sponsors. So it's just after the season, we went to a local park. We extended it to all of our sponsors, even the ones that were at the $20 level. So every level received those things, Facebook recognition and sponsor appreciation gathering invite. So the next one was $101 to $249 was you got a plaque and you got your name on our team banner. So Stephanie, to your point, we made a team banner, but your company would just get the name on the banner, just the name. Um, Then the next level was $250 to $499. And that would be everything we've mentioned before, but you also, we also made the boys have a sponsor shirt. So we put our logo on the front and we would make them wear that to tournaments when they weren't in uniform or just try to have them wear that consistently. And it would have the sponsor's name on the back of the shirt. So that level would be on the banner, on the sponsor shirt, get the plaque. And then the final level was 500 and above, and you would get everything we mentioned, but you would get a large logo an actual color logo of your organization on our banner. And that would be somewhat more profiled in the middle. What level did you notice the most participation at? I'm I'm mostly curious, I guess, about those two middle levels. Uh, The silver. But what was always funny, and we had to always tweak it, is someone would say, I'm going to do 200. And we would say, you know, for 50 more dollars, just saying, you know, then you will get on the sponsor shirt. And so then they would, oh, well, just 50 more dollars. Okay, well, then I went on the sponsor. And then we would also, I guess I should add, we would give all those sponsors a shirt. Oh, okay. That's nice. Very cheap uh, dry fit shirts that we would just put our logo on the front, but then they would be able to wear it and it would have their logo on the back. Oh, that's a really great idea. For our organization, uh, we do something very, very similar. Actually, every team kind of has their own plan. And so what my oldest son's team and my youngest son's team is slightly different, but same idea. There's different levels of sponsorships. And 
I don't want to say it's the easiest fundraiser, but to some degree it is. Like you said, if you're willing to hear the word no, and it's not quite as complex as yours, which is why I'd like to hear your ideas because you're offering, I guess it's more unique offerings that you came up with. That's really interesting to hear. Um, We found for our local rec league that the $50 sponsorship was key because generally like the team is formed and we have to get the banner in place and start our tournaments all in just a matter of like a few short weeks. We don't have a ton of time. Right. And these are all, you know, local businesses though. We send out a bunch of letters asking for $50 or maybe $75, but I think we did 50 and I was shocked at how many people came back very quickly. You know, $50 to a lot of businesses is not a huge deal. And they're, they're willing to hand that over to support a local, especially a local yes. team. I've noticed that more so than when we ask for sponsorships for the travel team, they, they really like sponsoring that local rec team. And for you, most of your players were from the same community. So I think that that's really beneficial to your sponsors. I'm guessing they probably really liked that. They really did. And it was critical really, because I had a friend that was from a, um, a neighboring community, which was much much larger. He's like, I, I just can't get that. We capitalized on, there was probably a nexus almost from everyone in our community to one of our players, whether it's, you know, oh, his mom's been my son's teacher or something. It, it's just, we live in a community that has about 4,000 people. So the support was amazing. So it probably made my job a little bit easier. But I also will say that, you know, with the sponsorships, we went to the surrounding communities as well, because some of the larger um, companies in our area were willing to even do the platinum sponsorships. That's when they kind of asked, like, you know, are you a 501c3? You know, how can we write this? off. We were not a 501c3 because we were just one team. I know that larger organizations that have a lot of teams underneath them can find the benefits of being a 501c3. The benefits for that and all the tax implications and the strict rigidity of of keeping track of everything with a 501c3 was not something that we necessarily took on. But we were able to tell our sponsors that they would be able to write it off as marketing because we were doing advertising for them on different levels. And they, they were thrilled by that. Right. It, they were able to list it as a marketing expense. So um, I don't want to talk about this a whole lot because this could be an entire episode in and <laughs> of itself, but I will say that our organization is a 501c3 and we have had a few companies that absolutely refuse to donate any money if it's not, if they can't get that official 501c3 letter. So in that ways, it has benefited us, especially because a lot of times it's the, it's the platinum level type sponsors that want that in place before they're willing to give money. The business is giving $50, don't care so much how, you know, whether it's a tax write-off as a donation or whether it's a marketing expense. Um, We will just barely touch on that as we go through this. There are a lot of benefits to being a 501c3 because of that, you know, and you have the tax exempt status. However, there are a lot of regulations and things that you need to keep in consideration as you're doing these fundraisers and, and, and as you get your licenses and there, there's a lot of kind of like hoops to go through. Um, but we are a very large organization to your point. We would never would do this for one or two or three teams. We have on any given year, 17, 18, 19 teams with our organization. Yeah, so the baseball and the softball side. Yeah. Yes. With the baseball and the softball together. There are a few things you really want to be careful about if you're a 501c3 that, like I said, that you make sure you get licenses for before you do them um, or certain fundraisers that you might want to avoid because of that. So just keep that in mind as we go through and we talk about these. And another thing that people need to keep in mind if they are 
especially a 501c3, is that you need to be careful about how you are collecting fundraiser dollars or donations because this is tax-exempt money. So the IRS is very keen to know how that money is used. Like earlier, you had mentioned that you were able to, you know, refund monies back to the kids and everything, but this was not, people weren't making donations to a tax-exempt entity when they gave this to you. So that's, I'm sure that's different for you. But for us, we can't do that um, because when it's, it's literally, like a tax write off a donation that would be getting us into like money laundering. That's my understanding. Things like that. If we're, if people are donating money towards a purpose for baseball and then all of a sudden individual families end up with money in their pocket, that's not how that should work. So that is something else to keep in mind. Not only that, but you have to be very, very careful about how you advertise fundraisers and how it works. If it's going towards an individual player's fee versus towards the entire team of the entire organization as a whole, because individuals should not be necessary. I don't believe the IRS intended for individuals to benefit from tax exempt donations to a nonprofit. Right. So Shannon, how about you tell us about some of your favorite fundraisers or um, your most favorite one that gave you the most profit? Well, for me, the most fun ones go hand in hand with them being the most successful. Oh, perfect. (laughs) That's why we're doing it. For us, fundraising was critical and we made it clear to our parents that being part of our organization was being part of the commitment to fundraise, period. So I think your each organization almost has to determine for itself, is there a need to fundraise? Will that come off my my costs? Like if I, if we do this fundraiser, then do we pay less player fees or how is that going to work? Because just to fundraise to fundraise, it can be futile and it can be frustrating for parents. You know, as I mentioned before, that we were unique in that we, um, most of our players resided in our community. Uh, so we knew that we would do best for a fundraiser to sort of tap into something local. So we did um, what I'll refer to as a trivia night. Mm-hmm. Um, a trivia night, if you're not familiar with it, is um, basically we required each player family to get two tables of 10. So that's basically um, 10 couples for the most part, or it can be obviously random people. No one under the age of 21 because we did serve alcohol at this trivia night and we did not have the players there. This was an adult only night. Um, so they pay $10 to get in and then we would hire a trivia um, announcer uh, usually for around 150 to 200 dollars there has been a few years where we've had someone donate their time and we've done the trivia cards ourselves and there's like six rounds of trivia and each table competes and answers questions and they're pretty fun so you know we have averaged about 25 to 30 tables. So when you're talking about it being $100 a table, that's $3,000 just walking in the door. But the biggest part that we would make beyond the trivia was we would have what we call here in Indiana, I'm not sure if it's all over, but we call it a piggy raffle. (laughs) That's new. (laughs) We do not know that. (laughs) Yeah. So I see it, right? And I'm from Illinois, so this was new to me too. Um, but you have almost like containers in front and you sell 
tickets, you know, like 10 tickets for like $10 or if, you know, maybe 20 tickets for 15, you can do price breaks, but you have items in the back that are donated from the community. People can buy a ticket and throw it into the cup that's in front of the items. And then you pick, pick that and they can win. We were always known trivia night around here is very popular. Almost every sport does it. It's sort of a community get together in our, in our area and people love it, especially if you do it around February when people have been inside for a long period of time. <laughs> That's a good like idea. The winter, they are ready to get out. Like I said, we average about 300 people to come. And so that was the 3000. And then on those piggy raffles, we would make almost five to $6,000. Wow. The key is, is that we required again of our families that you had to get two tables. Some didn't. Others were able to get five tables because they have huge families or they're a teacher at the school and all the teachers are going to come. But on average, everyone got two. And then you were required to donate a gift card of some sort, pretty much any denomination and Mm -hmm. uh, some type of basket. And we would have like a a Google spreadsheet that we would have people update. I'm going to bring a movie basket. I'm going to bring a lottery ticket basket. I'm going to bring. And so you at least had 10 to 12 baskets. But the key for us is that we decided that after the first year that we really needed to tap into people's psyche and realize that people just want to win. And so (laughs) they really don't care what's up there, they will throw a ticket in if they think that they can win. So these baskets are for like silent raffles or something like that, or they're for buying tickets to raffle off the item? I don't like silent auction myself. Some people will do a trivia night and you'll have a silent auction. But Diana, if you were my friend and you signed up for a basket, I don't want to outbid you. And so I wanted to take that dynamic away because I felt like, especially in a small community, um, that it just led to kind of an ugly dynamic. So we only did tickets and some would be high priced items. We would have someone donate a Yeti cooler, for example, maybe because they worked for Yeti and they got a cooler. And so, (laughs) but that would be not a $1 ticket. So we would have increments of tickets that would go up $1 tickets, $5 tickets. Um, You know, someone might donate their timeshare for a week somewhere or or things like that. But but what, what I will say, what we mostly, if you do a trivia night and I would encourage everyone, especially if you do it like in February at Christmas, when you get the most ridiculous, weird white elephant gift, yep. <laughs> just put it, put it in there. I love that. <laughs> you, you cannot imagine people would be like, oh. I have a Chicago bears birdhouse that I got for a gift. And it was like, put it in there. And then you'd walk by and people would be like, oh, there's only 10 tickets in there. I think I can win. So they'd put a ticket in and they put a ticket in. And then pretty soon you're like, there's like 75 tickets in that stupid birdhouse. Like, thing. <laughs> and, and it's crazy, but we would have approximately along with the gift baskets and then the other things. And then we would get a lot of local businesses to donate a haircut and oil change. We went to the school and we asked, could someone win coach of the day for football? Like where they get to go down on the sidelines of our local football game. That's free. So they would have that. Can you give a bat boy for a big game? And so they would give those things and those were all free, 
to us, but we would elicit so many tickets. So that particular fundraiser in a nutshell would make us anywhere between eight and $10,000. Wow. That's great. You know, it was an amazing night. It was just a fun night for everyone. It was not labor intensive, really. Um, It was just a lot of fun. So I was going to mention this later, but because it ties in so well, I'll compare it to something kind of similar that we have done in the past, but not nearly as well. Yeah, obviously. Yeah. Not nearly. In fact, we didn't even do it last year. I don't believe and that. And I don't believe we're doing it this year because it's not nearly as profitable as you're mentioning. Ton of fun. But in Illinois and Indiana, do you guys play Euchre? Yes. Okay. So Michigan in particular, we love Euchre and Euchre <laughs> Nights. So we do Euchre Nights and it's a very similar thing. What we've noticed for us is the most important thing is getting people in the door because once they're there, you can make money a bunch of other ways through 50-50s. 50-50 is something that you can do as a 501c3. You don't need a license or anything for it because it's all the same day. If you're doing a long-term lottery that takes place over several days, now you need a license. Right. So 50-50s are great. Um, we did kind of a combo silent auction slash there would also be a lot of items on a ticket table like you mentioned. But it's so funny. We never thought, I don't think we ever thought about the concept of having items that required more than a $1 ticket because it didn't work for more expensive items for us, but duh. I think we had so much going on though. I mean, like I was going to say like, those are fun, but I do not like doing them because I felt like it was so much work. And I was just like, I just can't right now because we would also have food at the Euchre parties. And so we would all have to bring food and then all bring our, you know, raffle items and all of our donated items. And I was just like, it's a lot. It was a big ordeal and it was not nearly as profitable. No. We It was combined between probably two teams usually, and we maybe made $2,500 to $3,000, but not everybody participated. So that wasn't, it was probably more like between one team because yeah. it was half of one team and half of another team that actually participated, but no, not ridiculously lucrative. But it, it was, was fun, fun to come to yeah. and to <laughs> participate. It was fun to participate yes. in. It was less fun to run. Right. <laughs> It is a lot of work, but if you kind of split up that work a little bit, it it seems to really work. And I think after doing it and getting the response we had, people looked forward to it. People would ask us about it. One year we had it at like an American Legion hall, but they allowed us to bring it. So each table brings their own food. So that was kind of nice. That was one nuance that we didn't have to deal with. Um, But the place, but you could not bring in your own drinks. So if they wanted anything, an alcoholic beverage, they had to buy that. And graciously enough, every year they've given us somewhat of a tip out from their sales that night because they normally would not have 300 people in there buying alcohol. So it's definitely a benefit to them. So they would give us a percentage. Yeah, that's a nice thought too. That's a good point. It is. So while we did ours, um, we often do ours at a Knights of Columbus hall. So same type of thing. And we do not get a tip out, but they don't, I don't believe they charge us for the rental and their drinks are so incredibly cheap. I don't even know. I want to say you could get a mixed drink for like a dollar 75 or something. I don't know. It's ridiculous. And I kind of feel like that's half the reason that people like to come to the event. (laughs) For sure. You know, I will, I will add that probably the biggest selling ticket item Um, of the trivia night. And if I was going to go with the team, if we had kept the team together and gone another year, I would have maybe tweaked it a little was a wheelbarrow of fun, we called it. And each family would have to donate at least a bottle of alcohol of some capacity and put it in the wheelbarrow. Plus we would get donations of alcohol and such and put it in there. And people went bananas trying to put in a $5 ticket to win the wheelbarrow of fun. 
I saw another organization in my area that actually asked a local bar establishment if they could put their wheelbarrow of fun in the bar for 30 days and that the bar would sell $5 chances and they cleaned up. I mean, they made thousands on that one particular wheelbarrow of fun. So that's a fantastic idea. And I feel like I want to steal that. Right. Um, but I will, I will say that again, as a 501c3, since it's not a one day event, you have to have oh, a yeah. license for that, <laughs> but it's a great idea. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, idea. That is a great idea. The other fundraiser that I guess I would mention, I mean, I think a lot of people do Super Bowl boards, which are always great. Um, and those are pretty easy, but I, I will say, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the app called Flipgive, mm-hmm. but Flipgive is an app. And I was a little skeptical, to be quite honest, like, uh, how much money could you really make? So we had our team all join on the app Flipgive. It's a free app. But basically what it is, is that when you purchase something online, if you can traffic through the app, through Flipgive to get to your particular website, for example, If you're going to buy something from Dick's Sporting Goods, instead of going directly to Dick's Sporting Goods, if you click on Flipgive and you type in Dick's Sporting Goods, it will traffic you through, but you will get like 3% back of what you purchase or 5% or 2%. And ironically, in one year, with all of our families sort of buying into it and doing their Christmas shopping and kind of trafficking through, we made almost $1,000 doing things we absolutely would have done anyway. We had one family that their religious event on Friday nights was to go to Buffalo Wild Wings every <laughs> nice. Sounds familiar. <laughs> it was on Flipgive, and he said he would typically spend, he has a family of four, he would typically spend 50 to $75 when he would go. He would be in the restaurant, he would go through Flipgive, and every single Friday he would buy a gift card that he would just show the waitress. They would scan it right there on his phone. But every single time he did that, he made us $6. So he was doing nothing, but it just flip give gave back $6. So every Friday for 52 weeks, we made $6. So he made the team just himself by going to Buffalo Wild Wings. I'm going to do the quick math, 300 plus dollars. And that's just him sitting in there. So flip give, I would encourage everyone to check Mm -hmm. out because it costs nothing. When you traffic through there, you don't lose any like, oh, I had a 20% coupon. You absolutely are just trafficking through to the website and you can do everything you want. But because you're trafficking through, they will give you money back. Like Ebates, I think is similar. Yes. I was going to say a lot of people are used to that anyway. Maybe they don't do it um, for a charitable organization, but they do it to earn money back or whatever. So I have been familiar with Flipgive for a long time. We have never done it. And every year somebody brings it up, like, Mm -hmm. why don't we do Flipgive? And every year, well, first of all, I think part of our problem is we don't ever really have anybody that wants to own fundraising. Like it sounds (laughs) like you really did, Shannon. And do you know anything about Amazon Smile? I do not. So Stephanie, why don't you looked into this? So I'm like, why don't we do this? I saw this in the notes that Stephanie made and I thought, I know. What? why don't we do this? I didn't know this was a thing. Yeah. So I, I've actually, we've used it for um, school, school PTO, as well as my mom donates to another organization here in Detroit. And so she was, every time she goes on to Amazon, she picks the organization. So they're obviously a 501c3 as well. And then um, she goes through there and then it donates um, half a percent of your eligible purchases on 
Amazon to the selected organization. So I was like, why aren't we doing that? I know, I know. I told Stephanie, like, even if nobody else does this, if just my family does the Amazon smile, I feel like that half percent is going to add up real quick. Yeah, especially (laughs) from this whole year. like Like during the whole pandemic, why did we not have this in place? Stephanie, what is your favorite fundraiser? So my favorite fundraiser um, is whatever takes the least amount of work. (laughs) (laughs) That's the most obvious thing you've ever said. so sorry, Shannon. Like the truth comes out. I I am a busy mom of three boys and, and I I'm at their school all the time. And so my, my time, I don't want to go out and sell stuff. So the tickets, so any of our raffle types, we have been very successful in our organization with, um, we've done a gun raffle. We've done a purse raffle. Those, um, uh, the Yeti cooler of cheer. Those are amazing. I'm always so jealous of those. Those do really well because we print off our tickets. We have our license on there and then I can go out and sell those, you know, into different areas. And it's very easy for me and I collect the money and then I'm done. So, um, I do really like those. Those are probably my favorite. Yeah. So those for us do tend to be quite profitable. And just as a general guideline, I guess I would say, at least for me personally, if I'm involved in a fundraiser, I don't want to even consider it unless it's at least a 50% profit margin. And depending on where listeners are getting this podcast, your area may or may not be conducive to a gun raffle. Oh yeah. Yes. True. So Michigan, we have a lot of hunting. And so there's a lot of bows and yes. in, quite north yes, of Detroit. Yes, so we yes, have, not, everyone's yeah. a hunter, yes. everyone's a gun owner. So gun, you know, I feel like my family is like the only non-hunting family I know. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> the gun raffles do extremely well. Um, and I want to say it's 70 to 80% profit or so. And we work with a local, well, local to me, it's actually from my hometown in Cairo. We work with our local gun shop. And so I love that we're partnering with a local business and it kind of helps them and it really helps us. And it's just something that's easy for people. In fact, we try to keep it so that it's a one in 100 chance to win a gun, no matter what. Um, And if we add more tickets because people are selling out, then we add more guns that you're going to win. So people like that one in 100 chance, but every year my husband kind of runs this and he ends up having to get more and more tickets because people are selling them very easily. I'm going to throw out something totally different because this is not a profitable fundraiser, but I'll tell you why it's my favorite. (laughs) (laughs) It's like really not profitable. Do you guys have bottle deposits like can and bottle deposits in Indiana or Illinois? No, we don't. You don't. Okay. So we do in Michigan. So people save all their cans and their bottles and then they're dirty and they're stinky and they're smelly and they're just a mess and nobody ever really wants to take them back. And since you've already paid the deposit a long time ago, um, people are generally extremely happy to get them off their hands and to give them to you to return them. The reason I like this as a fundraiser, because you have to imagine it takes a lot of collecting these dirty, stinky, sticky bottles and returning them before you really get any money. And it's that it doesn't require the whole organization. Like our family can just go door to door in our own neighborhood and ask people if they're willing to donate, but it gets my kids involved. Yes. I just can sit in the car and they can go up, you know, cause I, I feel like even if it doesn't make ton of money, 
they have to put in the work Mm -hmm. and they have to be, they have to work on their confidence and their people skills and they have to go up to strangers and, you know, they're in their uniform and they tell the, they have to ask them hard questions, be willing to hear the word no. Like there's just so many skills in there. And I feel like things that are being taught. And at the end of the day, when they make, you know, $110 to put into their team account, it's like, Hey, you know, you you did that, you know, thanks for helping out and you contributed to your own travel ball expense. So again, not hugely profitable, but I really like it. I'm a huge fan of it and we do it every year. Well, I'd love to sort of um, tack on to that. Uh, If you are to choose this type of fundraiser, if they're younger, I think as they get older, it gets a little bit awkward, but when they were nine years, they did what we call again, we'll call, we call things weird here in Indiana. They called it a tag day. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. They would go in front of like a local grocery store or a dollar general. They would have a can, they would be in uniform and they would have to basically ask for donations, somewhat like a Salvation Army kind yes. of yeah. ring the bell. But they would have signs and they would, you know, they would offer to push someone's cart and unload their groceries in their car, maybe for like a tip. And I was skeptical at best as to how much these 10 little boys in front of our local grocery store would make in a, from like a nine, when we did shifts because we couldn't have 10 people out there. So we would do three or four boys for a few hours. Plus it was long for them. Then three or four boys and three or four boys at the end of the shift, they made $800. Wow. And really surprising to me because a lot of people would just throw a quarter in, but a lot of people would throw a dollar in if they push the cart to an elderly woman's car and loaded it in, she might give them a five. Um, Some would say no, but when they were younger, I think it's harder to say no to a Mm -hmm. bunch of little boys just trying to play baseball. And they would say, you know, what do you need this money for? And again, to your point, Diana, it gave that, it made them communicate. It made them learn to take no. Uh, but it, you know, what are you going to use this for? We're going to use this for uniforms and tournament expenses. And, you know, we had kind of coached them a little bit, but they knew what to say. Tag days can be extremely profitable, but again, in a big city, maybe not as much in a smaller town or a smaller community, it, it can really be fairly profitable. I don't think you should do multiple ones like in a season or anything. Yeah. And I think that's a great point that like when the, the adorable eight or nine year old <laughs> comes up to you and he's drunk, he's got his baseball uniform on, like it takes a lot to tell that kid. No, <laughs> absolutely. 13 year old with a mustache is easier. To- <laughs> Yeah, we both have 13 year olds and it's real easy to say not as cute. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) That's so true. We are going to move on just as important as knowing what fundraisers are a lot of fun or really profitable. I think it's good for people to know about fundraisers that we have tried that maybe have not been so fun or have not been so profitable just to kind of maybe avoid going there if it's not going to work for them. So Shannon, it sounds like you've had a lot of success and you kind of know what you're doing. Have you ever done a fundraiser that just really didn't work out or you decided you're not going to do again? No, you know, um, we, uh, we do up here some restaurant give back nights. Um, I'm not sure if that's something you guys do around there. Um, yep. those, those can be profitable. And I say this tongue in cheek because if any of the restaurants want to listen to your podcast, I certainly don't want them to think that we didn't appreciate the effort by any means, but a lot of times they're only willing to do those on like a weeknight and because they don't want to capitalize on their normal weekend traffic. 
Um, mm-hmm. like don't include alcohol, which is totally fine. But um, those have been less profitable, in my opinion. Um, I think maybe if you get a small town cafe and a small town that maybe it would be more. But um, the only one that has been fairly profitable, but they changed their terms was Chipotle. Chipotle mm-hmm. at one point was... And it was not last year. I think it's down and I really don't want to be quoted on this, but I think it's down to like maybe 10 or 20%. But at one point it was like 40%. And that was huge. That's very nice. Yeah. What we did in our town was we, we, we don't live by a Chipotle. It's about 20 minutes away. So we told people if you would order, then we would pick it up and we would bring it to them. That was a colossal nightmare. Because we met in like the parking you lot. Uber Eats, yeah. Yes, but but Uber Eats because everyone was so excited because we have no delivery service in our town. <laughs> the fact that they were going to get Chipotle delivered, we had so many orders, which was amazing. But I was picking up at Chipotle 60, 70 orders. Oh, oh. Cipher. And that was just like one car load. And oh. so... Albeit it was profitable, I would not encourage anyone to sort of try to tweak that and make it like, because in my mind, I thought this is amazing. No one's going to drive to Chipotle, but we will bring Chipotle to you. It was a colossal disaster. But my guess is if you're not offering to deliver, it's probably very limited work on your end outside of just sending a bunch of social media posts and things like that. But our team, because we're all spread out and we could be 50 miles in any other direction, it's hard to like find a restaurant that a bunch of people's contacts would actually go to because we're from every different town. So that makes that for us hard. Stephanie, what about you? You kind of mentioned that you don't like anything where you have to do a lot of work. So (laughs) was the Euchre Night, were you listing that as a least favorite? That that was my least favorite. It's just, I I think around our area specifically, like we have a lot of sports teams, there's school groups. And so they're constantly selling stuff. And this might be popular for other people, but like those coupon cards or those local business books, like they, it's, it's great in theory, but man, I never use it. I never have it with me. My cousin says, yes, she uses it all the time for her school, but I'm just like, I hate those things. I don't, I don't want them. I never remember to bring it out. And so I feel like it's totally waste and, uh, to sell those. And yeah, so those are my, I hear you. And I always buy those stupid coupon (laughs) books. Like whenever like the football team is selling them or banned or when we sold them, I always buy them. Cause I'm like, ah, for $20, I'll get my money back. And no, No. I I remember to use it like one time I get like 50 cents off and then, yeah, it just gets buried. No, you're right. (laughs) (laughs) I want them to work. Yeah. That's why businesses should be willing to go ahead and support them by, by doing that because people never actually use them. I'm sorry. We don't, we don't remember the vast Mm -hmm. majority of us. No. What about you, Diana? I'm going to put for my least favorite, I already crossed off a few because we covered them. Stephanie kind of said earlier, anything where she has to work, I'm going to say anytime I have to sell something because I'm not a salesperson. Well, I kind of did go to business school to be honest, but but I am not a salesperson and I don't want to have to sell things, but even more importantly, I don't want to sell them to my friends and family. And I think that's one of those things that it depends on your situation. Like I usually don't work more than like super part-time. So I don't necessarily have a job to sell things to my coworkers and my husband's business, like, well, it's not business. It's the government (laughs) super strictly prohibits people selling things or like advertising their kids fundraising items. So that just leaves us with our friends and family 
And guess what? We've been in travel ball long enough that pretty much all our friends and family are part of the same organization (laughs) selling all the same stupid things. And not only do I have two boys that play for the same organization, but my nephew plays for the same organization as well. So my parents, you know. Yeah, they get tapped out. Absolutely. Right. Okay, so now that we've talked a bit about our favorite fundraisers and our least favorite fundraisers, there are several more that we haven't mentioned that I'd like to give at least a quick shout out. Um, Things that either we have tried and have been mildly successful or we're aware of other organizations doing. So there are fundraising opportunities along with the apparel, meaning um, whatever local apparel company you've decided to choose like the team hats and warm up jerseys and, you know, mom t-shirts and things like that from, um, they will often have a fundraising program built in where basically they'll say, this is how much we're going to charge. How much do you want to tack on as a fundraiser? And then after they run their order, then they'll send you a check for that amount. So it's up to you. How cheap or expensive do you want to make the items? How much of a fundraiser do you want to make it? So I know for us, when we do that, it's not a whole lot of money because we want to keep it affordable, but it is a nice little kickback. And we touched on how I in particular don't like selling things. But there are, there are so many sales opportunities. If you are comfortable selling things, what is nobody else selling? You know, like try to find something else or just what are people have a lot of interest in? Like I said, the gun raffle thing worked well for us. Um, so we, we like, I see a lot of landscape company type things. For example, people selling mums in the fall. Yep. That's like their first fall fundraiser, selling wreaths in the winter. I really like that when I found a local company that sold them to us for, I don't know, $12, $15 a wreath and they're fully decorated. And then we can charge whatever we want. So you take the orders in advance and then deliver them around Christmas time. And that's when you get a lot of return customers. It's once a year and people like to buy a wreath for their house. So why not buy it from a child for his baseball team? You, you'll see things with people selling candies, popcorn, um, like Little Caesars pizza kits. Mm-hmm. Do you guys, I don't know if you guys have Hungry Howie's, like Hungry Howie's coupon booklets, things like that. I mean, you're always going to have, if you're willing to sell things, ask your local businesses, you know, what, what programs they may have in place to help support your team. It may not be a giant fundraiser, but it may be a very easy fundraiser. And again, I'm going to go into this probably isn't ridiculously profitable, but this is something um, we did once because somebody reached out to us and said, hey, if you guys ever want to do a fundraiser for your team, if you're willing to host a party, you know, like a direct sales party online and, you know, you invite people, she said, I will donate what I would normally receive as my profit for the sales and what I would normally offer to my hostess for hosting the party all to your organization. And um, we did not have a ton of participation in that at all, but it was very simple. It was just inviting people on Facebook. And I want to say it ended up giving our team like three or $400. And she was happy because she was making contacts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you actually have people willing to put effort into it, it might be a lot more profitable. (laughs) Um, I've also seen uh, people hosting like a home run derby, like during the fall or the spring or whenever it's like kind of the off season. I always thought those were cool and then it would get the kids and the boys and girls involved as well. Or even like a -a hit-a-thon where, you know, they donate Mm -hmm. so much money for how many hits you get. So those are all all cool little things too, but I I don't know how profitable they really are, but it's fun. I would say the home run derby in the hit-a-thon could probably be quite profitable. I don't know um, your local home run derby that you guys had, Stephanie, you know, that I came to, to watch Keegan, you know, break the windshields (laughs) and all that. That was through Little League. That was, yeah. (laughs) But I bet you they made a lot of money that day. Oh, you're probably right. Yeah, concessions They made a ton of money. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the hit-a-thon, that was a, I think that's what it was, a fundraiser that I did as a high school softball player. You get people to, I don't know what you call that. Like, 
Yeah. Pledge. Thank you. That's the word I was looking for to pledge so much money. And it's a long day for the players, but it is something that gets the players involved Mm -hmm. to kind of circle back to that idea. So maybe for the older kids. Yeah. Yeah. Not something I really feel like doing because again, it's asking (laughs) the same five people for money again, but for others, it could be a great idea. And we covered the Super Bowl squares that people do. And I just, I didn't mention this before. Here's my little disclaimer. Be careful because if you're not collecting all that money in a single day and you're a 501c3, that's something that you would technically have to have some sort of license for. But people do make a lot of money with that. Yeah, those are pretty easy. And, you know, everything around here is so sports oriented that you could do um, not only the Super Bowl, but um, there's a way to do March Madness. I want to add one more fundraiser that I have not done, but it has always intrigued me. Um, And I'm not sure if you have something called a, I believe it's called a penny auction. And it kind of capitalizes, Diana, on what you had talked about before. You basically would um, rent out a hall, um, an American Legion, have that donated. And you have vendors, like someone selling 31, someone selling Sensi, all these different types of vendors come in. They set up a table. They agree to give you a percentage of their sales. It's just they bring their cash and carry stuff. But they also donate things to this penny auction. And people that come in pay a fee like a $5 and they get a paddle. And then you it's all about quarters. And so for example, if someone donated a 31 bag, they'd say, if you're willing to pledge a quarter, put your quarter forward. And then someone comes in and collects all the quarters. So if you have a hundred people in there, um, I guess that would be, what would that be? $25 in quarters? $25, if everybody, right. if everybody pushed in a quarter and then they have like a, a thing. And if you have your paddle up and they pull your number, then for a quarter, you won that 31 bag. Um, And people like the idea that it's kind of minimal, like these 20 foot. And so something big, like if someone donated a Yeti, they might say this one is worth four quarters. So if you're willing to donate a dollar and you have, you know, that many people there, then you're collecting all that money and that person would win the Yeti cooler for a dollar. So something definitely to research. It's kind of big around here and people do, it's pretty profitable. Some others as an aside, car washes uh, seem to do some fun, fun stuff. And we do, I don't want to call it a food truck, but we have something called Porta Pit, which is like, like a company would come and they do like rotisserie chickens in a parking lot almost. And you buy the rotisserie chicken. And basically the only problem with that fundraiser, and it's not a problem is you have to have the money in front. So you would say, I want you to bring 200 chickens at $5 each. So we're going to pay you a thousand, but we're going to charge $8. So you then you're fronting the money and then collecting it. Uh, but that seems to go great if you if you capitalize on the right day, like Little League opening day and you're oh, yeah. at the fire station, you will sell out in two hours. And the boys can get involved <laughs> with something like that where they're, it's like a drive-through thing, especially with COVID, that they're just bringing the right to your car. So those are a couple of other options. Great. Those are great ideas. And I'm so glad you brought up the COVID thing because that's something that I had planned on talking about, which was, I feel like this season in particular is going to be very interesting for a lot of families because it is a very hard time to ask anybody for money right now. Um, Family members, friends, local businesses, anyone. It's going to be an interesting year. So I thought this was one of the reasons why we wanted to do this fundraising episode now was to give people a myriad of ideas. I think it's a tough year to ask others for money. I 100% agree. And I think it's a 
tougher for families to somewhat come up with money for, for player fees and stuff. So I think that finding creative solutions to be able to allow your son to play at a higher level or, or experience what travel ball has to offer. Um, you know, it may take what normally would be one or two fundraisers and you might have to expand that to more just because they may not be quite as profitable as they have been in the past. For example, we would not be able to host a trivia night because we cannot have 300 people in one room. So Mm -hmm. if I was to do that this year, that is not even an option. And that was our big fundraiser. So we would have to come up with a plan B. Right. I would totally agree. I think it's twofold. I think you're going to have to get out there and try to beat the streets and see if people would be willing, because I think families are going to struggle, but I also think businesses are going to hold that a little tighter to the rain. It's definitely a year to be creative and think about, you know, your area and what makes sense for you. I have one more thing here that we didn't completely (laughs) fully cover. We covered raffles, right? The idea with raffles. And if you're a 501c3, make sure you have a license before you do the raffle. If it's over more than just a single day. Um, But we talked about kind of like doing a Yeti cooler or um, a barrel of cheer, something like that. We talked about the gun raffle. Um, You could really do any big ticket item. So just think about what's something that people are looking for in your area. Um, Just a simple lottery that happened that takes place over several days. And maybe every player has to sell a certain number of tickets and then anything above and beyond that you know, as profit for your organization. And then at the end, you, you know, you draw a first through fifth or first through 10th place winner and send the money, but you, you can do that, um, with the correct raffle license. You could do, um, I've seen like cow raffles, you know, oh, like for yes. half a cow or, oh yeah, we do that here. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So if you live in, especially if somebody on your team has a connection to yeah. someone that's selling that and they're willing to hook you up for, you know, a good price or maybe to donate it, then that I always buy those when I see Me those. Me too. That's something I buy anyway. So I'm happy to give money and donate it to somebody for the chance to win. Well, and I'm not extremely familiar, but I know, you know, especially now that we're in the COVID world, and I don't know that we'll ever go necessarily back. We're such a technology driven world in the sense that things that can be done online um, are probably going to stay there indefinitely. I'm sure we'll get back to some sense of normalcy, but it'll be a new normal. But I've seen a lot, like I'm on a travel baseball bats page on Facebook and this guy Mm -hmm. put on almost every day, he'll put on a bat and you there, he'll put 20 different slots down. And if you want to basically PayPal or Venmo him $10, he puts your name in that slot and at $20, at 20 chances, $400, and the bat only costs $250, he makes $150, somebody gets a $250 bat for $20. It's just, but again, I'm sure he has a 501c3 license maybe to do that. But if you couldn't do something like that in person, you'd be able to show all the pictures online. Absolutely. There's a scrambler like that you can do online so that everyone can see and it pops up with that person's name and that's who won it. So I think that we we can be creative in this COVID world right now that we're living in and still do those kind of fundraisers online. Yes. Great point. We'll just kind of wrap it up by saying, you know, this is the same thing that we've kind of said throughout the episode. Just make sure when you're doing a fundraiser that you think about your own geographic area, your social circle, and look at what other teams in your area are doing and try to find a fundraiser and make it your own. If you're considering, or if your organization already is a 501c3, consult you know, your organization's treasurer, whoever it is that has a good understanding about what fundraisers you can do, what sort of licenses or permissions you need before you do 
do them. And then make sure you understand how you can use that money and what you can do with that money and whether or not it's refundable once you've collected it. So that's just my disclaimer there because we are not experts. We're not accountants or anything like that. So Shannon, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh my gosh, it was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yes, you are a bucket of knowledge and we really appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> can you tell that to my husband, please? Yes, yes. <laughs> we will tell him to listen to uh-huh. this because I wish we would have somehow met you and talked to you a few months ago yeah, when right? we were still planning fundraisers because I have all these ideas now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's always next year. That is right. There is always next year. You're yes. right. So thank you, Shannon. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. So that's a wrap for our fundraising episode today. If we missed an idea that your team really loves to do and has been successful for you, or if you have any questions after this episode, please find us on Facebook or Instagram handle moms and baseball. And also please consider joining our Facebook group. It's still brand new. We're working on getting that going. It's called parents and baseball, and that's going to be probably the best place going forward to keep up with news about this podcast, to just keep in touch with any baseball related topics and to get feedback from us. Awesome. And on deck next week, we're going to be talking with a high level travel ball showcase level coach about his own experience with showcasing his players. Every player on his team made their own high school varsity team as a freshman and later all of those 2020 grads went on to play at a college baseball program. So make sure you tune in. Until then, have fun at the fields. We'll see you next week. She goes through there and then it donates, um, uh, what is it, 5% of your eligible purchases. Did you say 5% or half a percent? Oh, I'm sorry, half a percent. Okay, because I'm like, sorry, not five percent. Like, five percent, dang! It's late. Where are my glasses? Yeah, no. <laughs> that would be awesome, though. Yeah, five percent. Yeah. yeah.